you know, a lot of conventional farmers, the way I look at it is they were kind of striving to get to the farm that my father had before I came back. And then to see this, what their goal, just get scrapped and then kind of restarted. Um, there's an old grain farmer in our community, drove up over the hill and saw our cattle grazing out on our hayfields. And he, he stopped at it and told my dad that seeing those beautiful cows just ruin that hayfield just made him want to puke. And, you know, like, <laughs> that, that guy was very well respected in the community, too. So there's, like, so much pressure on my dad that he's losing his clout or reputation. And... Hey, my name is Corey. Welcome to the GrassCast. This is Stories on Pasture, oral history from the grazing community about getting started and going forward. This is our first episode, our first week ever on the podcast, and we couldn't have a better guest to get us started. The featured interview is with a guy named Jacob Marty. Jacob farms with his father at Greenfire Farm. Their story is, I mean, I just think it's such an important one right now. Jacob has been working the last five years or so to take over the family farm, and part of that means converting what used to be a dairy operation into, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if I'm going to get it. There's a lot of words. Jacob calls the the new setup a highly diversified, low-input, regenerative, perennial polyculture. And uh, you know what that means is he's got chickens, he's got turkeys, he's got beef cattle, he's got pigs, he's got fruit trees, he's got nut trees. I'm sure I'm forgetting. I mean, he's, he's got so much going on there. And uh, we were fortunate to talk to Jacob back in January of 2020 at the Grassworks Conference, where he had just some really powerful, interesting, important things to say about the process of taking over the farm, what it's like to work with family, and really, you know, the experience of returning to a community that, that he had been away from for some time. So that's, <laughs> that's enough uh, blabbing from me. I'll, I'll just let Jacob take it from here. I'm Jacob Marty from Monticello, Wisconsin. I'm 27, and I moved back to my family's uh, family farm. I'm a sixth-generation farmer on the land, and I take pride that I'm the third Jacob Marty to be stewarding the land and I farm with my father and then my girlfriend also helps out quite a bit on the farm. My background is I grew up in the community in Monticello and went to UW-Stevens Point after high school and got a degree in wildlife ecology there and I guess I couldn't avoid my agricultural roots that were in my blood and I kind of got the feeling that I wanted to get my hands dirty and contribute to conservation um, in an agricultural way because when I was at school, I guess I was hoping that they would talk more about how agricultural lands could play a role in conservation, but that wasn't quite the focus. It was more on public and uh, private lands that were specifically intended for conservation type of thing. and. I, if I quote someone, I think they actually told me, don't worry about farmers because they're too stubborn. Don't worry about that. Um, I was a farmer, you know, so I was stubborn. And I didn't take that as a, as a good 
suggestions. So I looked into uh, sustainable farming on my own and kind of slowly came around to the idea of return to the family farm, which I had never really considered before that. The origin of my conservation ethic was in middle school. And at the time, I always liked to argue when I was younger. I don't know why, so people told me I should be a lawyer. And so I always thought I'd be a lawyer. But then my grandma passed away, and my grandpa took my entire family up to Alaska as a memorial type of trip. And went up there and was just completely blown away by the wilderness. And I had never seen anything like that. And I've been like Yellowstone and a few other things, but it was just something different. It touched me. And I was always kind of surprised that my family was more often like staying inside, even though we're out in this amazing wilderness. And I was just like, look at this landscape. This is like the most beautiful day. And, and that was very formative in my life. And so ever since that moment, I was like, I want to protect nature, protect wilderness. And so they kind of refined over my high school career to think about, I want to provide habitat for endangered species and be someone that helps, has a positive impact on wildlife and nature. So that's why <laughs> when I graduated from high school, I was thinking, okay, after college, I was going to be in Africa or Alaska or the Mountain West or something like that out in the bush doing research. Um, and I would have laughed at you and told me I was going to come back to the farm. But yeah, I went to Stevens Point to study wildlife ecology, hoping to develop those skills and what I need to do to be able to have a, a career in conservation. And then just one thing led to another that I decided that I wanted to come back to the farm. Yeah, so the farm, my dad has lived there his entire life and he was a dairy farmer. He did some conventional row crop, corn and beans, in rotation with alfalfa, and he milked about 100 head of uh, Holsteins growing up. And then he also raised some Holstein steers for beef, grain fed on confinement lots. So that was what the farm was before I came back to the farm. When I came back, my intention was to create a sustainable conservation-based farm with direct marketing type of thing. So I leveraged my return to the farm uh, as a way to try that out. And we started with just 50 acres in 2015. Um, we did like an equip contract to help get set up and I had all this stuff kind of planned for like a year. I was like thinking about a lot. I had like how I want my fencing, my water systems, all this type of stuff. Uh, when I came back, we just took one field out of corn and planted into a very diverse pasture system. We bought a herd of beef cattle or bred cows um, with a yearling by their side that needed to be weaned and we were off and running type of thing. So over the years, we've grown up to about 250 acres into grazing out of a total of 400 acres on the farm, 300 of which is in agricultural use. So almost most of the farm in the past was in grazing. This year, we're actually taking some out uh, and we're, to get some old hay field that we're grazing out of the rotation and restart them kind of because they were getting old and not as productive. So we're actually going to put a little bit of row crops back in. So... That's been kind of the transition. We were a dairy farm with some dairy beef breeds. 
but now we do, my dad still does that, but on my side of the farm, I do 100% grass-fed beef, 100% grass-fed lamb, pasture-raised pork, chickens, turkeys, and lame hens. So <laughs> very diversified and got a lot of stuff going on. My dad and I have a pretty dynamic relationship. I would say it tends to be on the negative side of things, just where we don't see eye to eye on a lot of things. We're very similar, and that's we're too similar, uh, and so we butt heads a lot. But when we have the same similar, we have the same personality traits, but we have completely different mindsets and, and visions. And so a lot of times those kind of collide, and uh, so we do have a lot of conflict. For the most part, he wants to keep the, the farm and the family. I have three other brothers who have less than zero interest in the farm and working with my dad. And my dad is, he has a reputation for being hard to work with uh, when he was a dairyman. But he also has a reputation that he was very successful and he was a very good farmer. He ran a very tight, uh, extremely well-run farm. He was a leader in the community and that type of thing. And so when I came back and being kind of green, had a completely different way of doing things that my dad really doesn't have much experience with, um, and I didn't have experience with, but I had a lot, I had put a lot of research, I visited farms, I uh, immersed myself into trying to learn and be kind of prepped for it. The way I kind of looked at it was my dad communicated somewhat to me that he wanted to, you know, hand it off and step away. And I also, uh, motivated by some of the environmental issues that our generation faces, and I wanted to, I felt like I've had this opportunity, almost like a privilege, and I need to make the best use out of it. And so I was a little bit too ambitious. And so as we've grown over the years and some things haven't gone as well as planned, some things have gone really well, we're still very much in this unstable uh, footing, I guess, that uh, we're still trying to figure out and trying to get financially sustainable as well as the animals and getting everything just kind of refined and working. So yeah, my, my relationship with my dad is definitely strained, um, but it just depends on the day, the week, the weather. We both got, like, we're both pretty anxious people, but uh, we react very differently to that. And uh, that leads into more of that conflict because I'm someone that more just wants to relax and leave that anxiety, grab it, put it away, and kind of refocus on something, and it consumes my father. I have no problem sleeping at night. My dad stays up all middle night about every little thing. Uh, so it's just like little things like that, but just constantly lead together. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, um, we're still figuring that out. <laughs> my brothers think I'm insane. Because, like I said, my dad growing up was very tough to work with. Uh, so they were like, why are you going back? There's so many other ways you could have gone about this. My mom has been pretty just like happy to have me around. Probably is, I'm pretty busy, so I don't get to see her as much, even though she's across from the driveway. She did retire now. For the most part, she just was happy that her, myself and the other sons are within distance. And, but my family isn't like a typical family. We're very independent and we don't I don't know seeing like my girlfriend's family is much closer than my family and we don't communicate as well so I don't know like my dad has put up with a lot he's been very 
forced into helping out a lot, but everyone else really hasn't done, hasn't been involved or offered much support or like criticism. They've just been kind of hands off. My youngest brother did spend the summer at home, and so he helped me out a little bit, but uh, he got other interests and he doesn't. He definitely does not get along with my father, so they he kind of stays hands off. So I've been having to kind of recruit people from outside my family to support, I guess, the farm. So like my parents don't even buy product from me. <laughs> you know, I provide as much as I possibly can because I want them to eat good food. But if I didn't do that, they I don't know. It's just a weird dynamic, <laughs> I guess. So. <laughs> The community at large, farmers and non-farmers, were like, kind of excited for me to come back and do this. And there's a lot of support. Again, not much people buying product, though, but just like happy that I'm doing this kind of crazy idea in their mind. Um, a lot of farmers were looking on. And like when I was going back, I was very vocal about why I felt this way, but this is important, and trying to urge people. Um, I'm motivated by kind of the stick in the butt type of uh, mentality, I guess. And so I was like, oh, if I can, maybe I can drum up some interest about there's so much erosion and what, like habitat and flooding and all this type of things that our conventional farming system is having an effect on our own community and other communities that we can't see. So I think a lot of people are actually kind of very skeptical and maybe a little bit rooting for it not to work. And there were some people said that like straight their face and I like, didn't like how we're doing it. And you know, a lot of conventional farmers, the way I look at it is they were kind of striving to get to the farm that my father had before I came back. And then to see this, what their goal, just get scrapped and then kind of restarted. Um, There's an old grain farmer in our community, drove up over the hill and saw our cattle grazing out on our hay fields. And he, he stopped at it and told my dad that seeing those beautiful cows just ruin that hayfield just made him want to puke. And, you know, like, <laughs> that that guy was very well respected in the community, too. So there's, like, so much pressure on my dad that he's losing his clout or reputation. And so it's just, like, stuff like that. Our neighbors never have, like, drawn a lot of interest to, like, our farming neighbors about what we're doing. I've had field days type of things and some of that's my failings maybe not reaching out to them enough or maybe being a little bit too abrasive about why I was going about this and I felt very strongly about how we need to take action on it but a lot of the non-farming neighbors I uh, love it and they support and I have a lot of people just up the road down the road that buy from me they support me on Facebook you know on social media they share pictures of it with their friends and so it's a mixed bag type of thing. One of the also the things that kind of threw fuel on this fire was when I first came back, there was a huge CAFO that was moving in about five miles away. And it kind of rocked our entire community. And I got involved with that. And that's one of the cruddy things about that in any type of community is that you have this thing from out of the community come in and it just naturally divides and pits people against each other and you know, I don't know like it, there's a good risk that already 
protein groundwater is going to get even worse. And you know, I want to live at this farm in this community for the rest of my life. And I don't, I know that the factory farm is going to lead to rural decay. And then some people were making money off of that and throwing the rest of the community under the bus. So I was very vocal about that. And that rose people the wrong way. So it just sucks because it's like, it's natural thing. It's very hard to navigate that and keep the community together. But I wear my <laughs> heart on my sleeve type of thing. So, yeah. I thought a lot about it and it's like, for me, I don't necessarily regret what I've done. I kind of regret, like, it's just hindsight, like, oh, I wish I would have done this better. And, like, I think about you can motivate so many of people in our younger generations that are just, I don't know, there's a lot of jadedness and resentment, and but there's also extreme motivation and hope there, too. And so I was, I just found that, and certain things led that into that. And I was thinking, I was like, well, should I do that for other people and try to recruit them? Or is there a better way to go about this? I don't know. But I have some, like, overall ideas. I, I used to think it was really kind of concentrated in agriculture and just our culture type of thing. But now I'm realizing that there's so many <laughs> social and political factors that lead into just this massive obstacle that we have on so many different fronts, whether it's climate change biodiversity, collapse, just wealth inequality, rural decay, like there's just so many things going. It's going to take a Herculean or revolutionary organization. It doesn't have to be violent or anything like that, but people need to come together. And I don't know how to do that. I don't know, but I, I still feel optimistic and hopeful. Thanks, Jacob, for sharing this week. So honored to have you as our very first podcast guest. One more time, that was Jacob Marty. He farms at Green Fire Farm in South Central Wisconsin. If you want to follow him, I, I think you should. I mean, I think Jacob is going to be big. I, he's kind of already big. But you can find him. His website is www.green firefarmllc.com. He's also on social media, Instagram. I know for sure I follow him on Instagram. You could follow him too. Beautiful pictures. The GrassCast is a project of Grassland 2.0. If you want to find out more about that collaborative, wonderful, amazing group of human beings and the work that they're doing, our website is www.grasslandag.org. Couple thank yous. Uh, we got to start out with the interviewee, interviewers. They talked to Jacob this week, Case Wheatley and Marnie McGregor. Also, Mike Bell. Mike, I'm so glad we made it to this point. We finally got a podcast out. <laughs> Our first one. So many more good ones coming. Thanks, Mike, for guiding us to this moment. Hannah Cass. Hannah listened this week more times than she wanted to, I'm sure. Gave really valuable feedback. Thanks, Hannah. And thank you to members of the grazing community in Wisconsin and beyond the whole country, all you grazers out there. We are so appreciative to those who have spoken with us, shared your experiences. We truly are humbled by your knowledge and your wisdom. One last thing. 
This music that you're listening to in the background right now, that is March of the Cranes by Gramini. Thanks, Gramini, for letting us borrow it. Okay, you made it all the way to the end of my rambly credits. That probably means you're going to tune back in. We are coming to you about every two weeks. Keep an eye out. Another episode. Next one's going to be awesome. I'm not going to give you any hints, but it's worth it. So stay tuned. <laughs>